Well, turn with me and let's look at the book of Exodus. We are going through an exposition of this book, and we are now going through the Ten Commandments. And uh, I could not get into the service until basically the second to last song. So I trust the scripture reading was done from Philippians 1, yes? Yes? Okay. So you saw that that text wasn't our text of study, as it normally is. And so as we're going through the Ten Commandments, uh, it would be profitable to read them every week. But what we're going to do for the scripture reading, we're going to give you a complimentary, probably New Testament passage to whatever commandment we're looking at. So we read from Philippians. I trust that you saw the end of chapter 2 there in the reading, the exaltation of Jesus and His name above all. It's a fitting place for us Christians as we start, as we consider these commands. But then as we do that, that means I want to set before you the text of study. And so listen as I read our text, and I'm going to read all of verses 1 to 7 of Exodus 20. So this is what Holy Scripture says. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands." of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Praise be to God. We, we understand trademark and we understand copyright laws. I think you know they're all over our culture. Uh, I think you can imagine why they're quite important in our society, especially if you're any kind of content creator, uh, if you're any kind of business owner, you know how important your brand is, that, that recognition of what that represents for your business. Uh, it's so important that those brands are protected for the sake of quality control, maintaining your brand, maintaining the story about your brand, for example. Because conversely, imagine this, imagine if scores of burger joints just started popping up all over the place. And imagine they had names like Max Burgers or MacArthur's Big Macs or Mickey's Burgers and Fries. And they all started using giant yellow golden M's to advertise or indicate their restaurant. Obviously, that's copying the iconic McDonald's trademark, and it would be horribly infringed. That is, many would see the golden arches and they would end up at some other burger place. Now, that actually might be a good thing, but that's beside the point, right? McDonald's would have no more uh, charge or representation or control over what the golden arches represent or how they show only their restaurant. People wouldn't know what to think when they saw it and where they were going. Well, it's this picture of trademark and copyrights that proves such an excellent analogy for the command we're going to talk about this morning, to not take the Lord's name in vain. For what's happened is this, God has leased out His name, and He's leased it out to His people, to Christians, those He has redeemed. 
He's marked them with it. He, they are identified by His name. But as one theologian has put it, it needs to be understood, he says, however, that God's name has not been released into the public domain. That is, God retains legal control over His name and threatens serious penalties against the unauthorized misuse of this supremely valuable property. All trademark violations will be prosecuted to the full limits of the law. The prosecutor, judge, jury, and enforcer is God. So, Christian, Christian, you bear the name. So the word for us is, don't do it wrong. Don't take His name up in vain. Rather positively, to sum up what this text is about, it's this. Let all that you say, every word that comes out of your mouth, and then the very way you live, be worthy of that name of your Redeemer. They would not solely his name, it would not detract from his fame, but it would correspond to it, be worthy of it, that it would praise him. Let all you say and do be worthy of the name. We'll unpack this in three points. And in the first place, though, we just need to unpack what it means to take up God's name. Just that first part of verse 7. The theme this morning is we're talking about it's living worthy speaking worthy of this name that we've been saved by. And so we need to first just slow down and focus on that kernel command to take up God's name, to unpack what's meant here. And this is really important for us to slow down in particular because I think we assume we know what this means. I think we already assume that we know what this command's about, especially because it sounds rather familiar to us, doesn't it? Um, The way it's captured here in the English Standard Version which, it, which is giving uh, credence even to the, to the King James. It, it's pattern after language we all know. Do not take, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. But we're so familiar with it, and yet, do we really understand what it means? Sure we do. Don't use God's name as a curse word. That's what this is about. And if you want to get really technical, Rick, I'm sure we'll get to the very fine details about making a list of all of the near-curse words us Christians like to use, you know, like gosh and geez and these kind of things. And I hope you'll give us the right list. Well, I'll disappoint that this morning. (laughs) Because I submit to you, we're dealing with something far, far greater than a mere few words that come out of your mouth. It's going to encompass that. It will, actually. But it's so much more. And so with that on the front end, hear this command again with, if you could, could, like the first time, like the first time you've heard it. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now to stop there, we need to clarify, what does it mean to take the name? What does it mean to take the name of the Lord? And most assume it's this idea that you would take the Lord's name on your lips. That you would take it up onto your lips. It's going to come out of your mouth. And so the implication would be, don't let God's name come out of your mouth in vain unless you really mean it. 
And so to capture that, several translations put it like this. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And that's good. Uh, That captures well what is meant here. But it's still, this command means more than that. For the command isn't merely about taking His name up on your lips. Actually, this word for take, it's really common in the Hebrew Bible. It occurs all the time. Just in basic ways of you take something means you pick it up and you lift it up. You might pick it up to carry it somewhere. You might lift it up so everybody can see it. But you take up this name. You carry it. And so to extend the meaning then, don't take up his name. Don't put it on yourself in any way unless you mean to. Because when you mention God's name, I think you understand this, you're bringing God into whatever thing you were dealing with. You're tying it and associating it with His name, with Him. And in the broadest sense, I think we understand this, because back to the trademark picture, this is about fame, this is about name, this is about reputation, you see. Maybe we can talk about that. He's making a name for Himself. Well, God has a name for himself, and it's trademarked by his name put on his people. It's tied to his reputation, and this is why his name to him is so important. Because you see, those he buys, those he loves and plucks out of the world of the lost, he says they are mine. He buys them with the blood of Christ. We saw that in the beginning here, even with this picture of redemption for Israel, because where do the Ten Commandments begin? They begin with grace. They begin with salvation. They begin with redemption. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's where we stand, and so this is how you will use my name. They are His people. He is their God. They are marked, trademarked by Him. And so as His redeemed, they represent Him then wherever they go with whatever they say. And that wasn't just true about Israel, but Christian, that's true about you. Think about this. When you believed in the name of Jesus, that His death was enough to save you from your sins, when you called on His name to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, you were reconciled to God. Paul talked about it to say you were united to Him, such that the Father now doesn't look at you and see you, He sees Jesus. That's what happens by faith, so to speak, in heaven. But when that's happened, when we call on Christ by faith in the name, we show that on this earth by a confession. And the New Testament sign of that confession is baptism. Do you know what happens at baptism? It's nothing spiritual or magical. But you are making a stand before the world that you stand with the name of Jesus against the world. Remember the Great Commission. We saw this, of course, the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus commands us as the church, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so what's the first step of being a disciple? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian and you go through the waters of baptism, you are siding with being identified with the name. You're being branded by Jesus. 
that his name, his reputation is associated with you. You've taken up his name. And so then the question arises as we think about this. What do people, what do outsiders think about God, about God's name, when they look at and think about you? Because you understand the, the Old Testament people of Israel, they slandered God's reputation by their disobedience, by their immorality, by their injustice, by their idolatry. Paul had this to say to the first century self-righteous Jew of his day. And he's actually quoting from the Old Testament. So it's been going on for a long, long time. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 2, verse 24 about the Jews. He says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God's name is made fun of. It's sullied. It's spoken of evil because of you. Because the way you live, because how you so badly misrepresent him, even as you represent the trademark Jesus or Christian. I trust you're starting to get a feel now for what it means to take up the name. This is not merely about a few words that might slip out of your mouth in an unfortunate moment. It's about being associated, branded with Jesus. That his name and reputation gets tied to you. And as that happens, he wants us as his people to live and talk like that matters. He wants to speak about him. He wants us to live for him in a way that doesn't sully his reputation, but faithfully commends it and puts it up for all to see. So that's what it first means. This is setting up what does it mean to take up God's name, it's to be tied with him and his reputation. Well, then how do we do that? All right. Well, in the first place, this means we must do it purposefully. Second half of verse 7 then. Really just a phrase. But we must take up God's name purposefully. So how do we bear the name aright? How should we think about this privilege of being Christians? Well, you have to take it up purposefully. That's the positive way of saying what the command puts in a negative way. And so you see it there in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's the negative way to say it. But really, it's that key phrase at the end, in vain, that captures what's being forbidden here. And so again, we do well to think about, well, what does this mean? What does it mean to take God's name in vain then? And as we noted, to capture just in the broadest sense, a few translations have opted for something a little different than maybe you're accustomed to. They, they say things like, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And that's helpful. I think that captures well the Hebrew. And yet, this isn't a mere misuse or abuse of his name as in the words. Uh, we can still go a bit deeper. Uh, this word in vain, it has to do with emptiness, pointlessness, thoughtlessness even. It has to do with something being worthless or powerless, very light, insignificant, doesn't really matter. To use God's name to take it up in a way that it, he's insignificant. His name doesn't mean much. It means nothing because he doesn't mean anything. 
You could put the command like this. You shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God for nothingness, for no purpose, weightlessness. It's the very opposite of the Hebrew concept of glory. In the Old Testament, in the, in the Hebrew language, the idea of glory isn't like a shining light. It's about a weightiness, a heaviness, a significance. Like we use the expression, that guy carries a lot of weight. Well, that's this pattern after this idea of Hebrew glory. It's a weighty thing. It has impact. And so we take up it in vain, his name, when we act like it is not a weighty thing, it's not significant, you could take it or leave it. And I think we understand this because every culture, maybe every family, you have words or things you just don't talk about. Or if you do, you have to talk about it in a private or special way. For example, you don't speak flippantly about someone's dead grandmother. Um, we don't make jokes about Auschwitz, do we? We shouldn't. But even, just, again, very everyday things. Now, it, the conversation just changes when something comes up that you know you're probably not supposed to speak about in a light way. So Aaron and I experienced this just the other, the other day. We were at dinner at a friend's house, and we were talking about our different ages and kind of how we grew up and these kind of things and what our parents were doing. And so somebody just very innocently asked me, oh, well... How old is your mother? They'd be curious to know. And, you know, then it instantly becomes awkward because I have to say, well, my mother passed away some 20 years ago. And instantly the conversation just like changed. I mean, have you been there? It's like, oh. It's, I just saw the guy's eyes get real big and then he changed the conversation. Because he just, he just, you just don't talk about that. Or if we're going to talk about it, we need to talk about it with seriousness, with sobriety. And so the jovial nature of our conversation turned at that point. Well, if that's true about how we honor the past, the deceased, how much more should it be true about the name of the holy God, our maker and redeemer, whose name is worthy of more reverence, respect, and honor than any? No reference to the name of God should ever make him seem like he doesn't matter. For the very matter of yourself is being held together by that power. Now to put a finer point on it, I want to explore with you just a few ways that we take up God's name in vain. And to get our arms around it, I'm going to put it in three different categories to help you think about what this means. So... Don't ever use God's name in a false way. Don't ever use His name in a frivolous way. Don't ever use His name in a fake way. Don't ever use God's name in a false way, a frivolous way, or a fake way. So I want to take each one of those and explore this with you for a few minutes. First of all, this command would certainly prohibit us from using God's name in a false way. That is to tie His name into something that we might advance a falsehood, an untruth. Now, to start with, under this category, I'd begin with blasphemy, the actual slander of the name of God. And that would include everything from, say, Christopher Hitchens' New Times bestseller, New York Times bestseller, titled, God is Not Great. That's slander. That's blasphemy. Or it fits also the claim of some who say the gospel is divine child abuse. 
That's slander. That's blasphemy. That's taking God's name in vain. That's evil. It's in any way accusing God of evil, that he is wicked for the events of history, let's say. Or maybe it's a particular thing going on in your own life. You're thinking things like and saying it. If God is good, he would never let this bad thing happen, so he must not be good. It's God's fault. He's done wrong. No, that's blasphemy. That's taking up his name in vain. It's not true. He's not bad. He's not evil. More obviously, to take it in a false way would, of course, include taking up false oaths. That is, you promise to the Lord and before others to do something or to say something about the truth, but you never intend to keep it. You know you're propagating a falsehood. You're putting forward lies, but you're bringing God's name into it. The God of truth. He doesn't like that, to be associated with lies. Now, let me explore two more ways about this propagating falsehood that I think we as evangelicals, you know, the people that honor the Bible, uh, are far more susceptible, perhaps. Because do you realize this? You're taking God's name in vain when you misuse or misapply Scripture or you twist Scripture to advance your own agenda. That's taking His name in vain. Because what you're doing, you're not submitting to the truth of God. You're not submitting to the Bible. Instead, you're trying to use the Bible to advance your agenda and bring God into it as if He approves or has endorsed it. We see this again in the wider evangelical culture. Uh, With this, a generation ago, it was the so called evangelical feminists who kept quoting to us Galatians 3.28, day and night, that there's neither male nor female. And they would keep quoting that to make the case that women should be preachers and pastors. Again, never mind what the whole of Scripture says. They have this verse. No, they're using that verse to advance their agenda. Or, of course, if we could talk about the flavor of the month, that has all to do with homosexual and trans relationships, which, again... They're just so clearly forbidden in so many passages of Scripture. And yet, some wish to take a verse or two and leverage those to trump all other truths, whether it's the truth, well, God is love, or that God loves sinners. And so then homosexual acts are approved now. Again, despite whatever is so clearly rejected and denied throughout passage after passage in the Bible. We take one verse, we pull it out of its context, from its meaning, really, in its original context, and we push our own plan and agenda. And then we want to slap God's name on it. That is sin. And it's not just a sin that liberalizing Christians out there fall for, but we do it all the time. When we take up a single Bible verse to escape a whole host of the implications of a whole bunch of other Bible verses. Say it's the one command, do not cast your pearls before swine. And so we try and assuage our conscience about never sharing the gospel of Christ, because I wouldn't want to disobey that command. What about obeying all the other ones about speaking about Jesus? Or there's the command in Thessalonians, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so that means I never give anybody any money. How well have you represented his name? Is he like that? 
Now try this. Another way we falsify taking up his name in vain. Sometimes, and maybe we know better not to put a Bible verse on it, but we'll just leave it up to these personal, direct words from God when we talk to one another. You know, the Lord's just been telling me, and then just fill in the blank. I've even heard as a pastor, I've heard people justify their sin this way to me. I know we're supposed to get married, but I really prayed about it, and the Lord's told us it's okay to live together for now. He knows our situation. Uh, no. That's slander of the name of Christ and His Word is what that is. Jesus had nothing to do with that. Or more common among us is a situation like this. We, we make some big decision, and we don't get counsel on it from godly people who love His Word and are trying to help us walk with Christ, and so we leave our job, or we change churches maybe, or, or we move to a new town. We, we go off to this college, and, and it catches you out of the blue, and so you say something like, well, that's interesting. Why did you decide to do that? Oh, well, God was leading us. He told us that this was the right time. Interesting. How did he tell you? Because you understand what we're doing. Once we bring God into those leading and decisions, I mean, what are you supposed to say in response? God's really telling us this is the right time to change jobs. Well, okay. I mean, what are you supposed to say? I'm God and I know better than him. But that's not what's going on. We like to interpret our choices as God's voice and leading. So we don't have to answer to anybody else. We know how this works. Uh, Rick, are you saying God doesn't direct our lives or that he's not involved? No, oh, he is. And he's involved in leading and even in very intimate ways. But understand, he speaks by his word. That's how you hear his voice. And if you must hear it audibly, read it out loud. That's how we know his revealed will. Now, in hindsight, I can look back and I can make all kinds of conclusions about what God wanted for my life, where he was directing me, but no voice told me to do it. And so we'll do well to stop trying to elevate our plans and ideas by pretending that it was God who told us so when he has told us nowhere in his word about that. Phil Riken goes so far as to say this. He says, this is false prophecy. I'll interject. You know what they did with false prophets in the Old Testament? God has already said whatever he needs to say to us in his word. He goes on, of course, there is an inward leading of the Holy Spirit, but this is only an inward leading, and it should not be misrepresented as an authoritative word from God. He's absolutely right. We misrepresent him when we try and advance our agenda and bring God into it. We also take up his name in vain when we use his name in a frivolous way. That is a way that's devoid of any meaning or significance or reverence. We say the name and we don't mean anything by it, or at least nothing, anything thoughtful related to our God. So, like for myself, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and yet I knew the name Jesus Christ. I knew it really well. I said it often and repeatedly. 
But it was never in reference to my Lord or Savior. I mean, I was so devoid of a Christian understanding. I didn't get that Christmas was really at all about Jesus' virgin birth. That's how out of step I was with the truth. And yet, I was brought up and I used his name all the time when I got angry or when I lost at a game or when I got surprised or when I messed something up. It was just a cry of frustration. But I had no thought about Jesus. I had no thought about who he was, the majesty of his person, his greatness, the sweetness of his name. I was just breaking this command. And the same thoughtless attitude, this irreverent attitude is at play even when we replace some of those words with our own Christian counterparts of them. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh. Or geez. Or OMG. Or we'll even say, good Lord. Do you mean anything about that when you said it? Did you intend to invoke God into whatever the situation was? Or for at times, did you mean to actually call God down from heaven to damn this thing? To condemn that thing or person to hell? And we do it even with language like, what the heck? Did you really mean to bring to mind and invoke the eternal torment and punishment of Satan and the souls that follow him with these thoughtless blasphemes? Because that's what you're doing even with these expressions that are clouded in Christianese. This pastor nails it in our hearts, frankly, when he writes this. Some people think that these are just manners of expression, but they are really just a more polite way to swear. They may also be a better indication of our true spiritual condition than what we say in church. Ouch. It's true. It reveals where our hearts are at. I was talking with a couple of people uh, between services, and we were you know, kind of going back and forth about, you know, what about these Christianese words and are they okay or not they or not they okay? And in the end, we were talking about it on Tuesday as an eldership, and one elder insightfully brought up, well, whatever words you're using, it just shows your lack of self-control. And that's really what those words are, a lack of self-control, which is sin, to be clear. It just reveals where our hearts are at, whatever quite words you use. And so when you're using words like that, let alone God's actual name, so thoughtlessly, it exposes how unfeeling we are, how distracted we are, how much we have a wandering heart. So we take it up in vain when we use it to put forth falsehood, when we put and use it in a frivolous way. We also speak his name in vain when we use it in a fake way, a phony way, a pretending way. This is perhaps the most dangerous for us as we are here right now. That is, when what comes out of your heart in worship, or excuse me, what comes out of your mouth in worship is far, far away from wherever your heart and your mind are. I mean, again, think about corporate worship. We sing one thing, we say one thing, but our hearts are in a galaxy far, far away. We'll sing in a moment. And wonder fills this worshiper. 
That's what's going to probably come out of your mouth. But where's your mind? Where's your heart? Are you wondering about lunch? Wonder fills this worshiper what I'm going to eat? Or is it about the God? The song goes on. May the matchless name of Jesus be the anthem of our lives. Oh, I like the tune. I love to sing loud. But where's your heart? What's the anthem of your life? What is that heartbeat that you're living for? Are you even thinking about him? Dare I need to point also to a prayer life? How many family meals have just begun with some kind of rote recitation? God, we thank you for this day. It's been a beautiful day. We thank you for this food. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. Was your heart really thankful? Did you even try to pray? Or were you just, I know we say this every meal, so we better get to it. It's not good to be in a habit of being comfortable of saying God's name and not even realize who you're praying to and who you're talking to. He's too great. He's too glorious. He's too majestic. He's too awesome. And he's too good to be thoughtlessly brought out of your lips. That is, it may be the right words, yet it does not honor him. Because your heart's distracted. You're far away from it. It's like the husband who takes his wife on the weekly date night. Because he's a good husband. And this is an entirely hypothetical situation. But you're at dinner with your wife, and there's a lovely meal set before you, and there's the most lovely woman across the table from you, your beloved bride. It's an excellent meal. You're there to spend time with her, to pursue this relationship, because you know you need to. And yet, there's also a giant widescreen TV right above her head in the bar behind her that happens to be showing the basketball game you kind of hope to see tonight. And so, yes, you're at dinner with your wife. Yes, you're sharing a lovely meal, but it's actually in silence or you're very distracted as your eyes basically are on the screen behind her the whole time. Sure, you did a date night. Good on you. But your mind and your heart were somewhere else. And trust me, you did not honor your date. Nor do our empty prayers or mindless songs honor our Lord. Worse than that, they dishonor Him. Treating His name as nothing of significance. Nothing really worth thinking about. We also take up his name in vain when we don't take it up carefully. We must take up God's name carefully. This is the the rest of verse 7. We must be mindful about how we take up his name because what we see here is he does not take its misuse kindly. That's the immediate thing that stems out of this command, this prohibition. The consequence for not heeding it. So let's now finally hear verse 7 in full. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Don't do it. Don't misrepresent him with your words or with your life. Why not? 
For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In other words, you're not going to get out scot-free. You're not going to go unpunished. You'll pay for that. And a bit more ominous, the way this command is put, is that the precise punishment's not even given. You know, one has said, it's like the cop who stops you and tells you, hey, I wouldn't do that if I were you. When an authority tells you that, he's not giving you advice. He's not giving you a suggestion. It's a warning, maybe a threat even. Take one another step and you'll see what happens. And with this warning, God's saying, you need to stay far, far away from my name if you intend to treat it as insignificant and meaningless. And yet we see here, even while God promises to punish the evildoer, but don't we so often see the blasphemer get off scot-free? Again, I kind of shared a bit of my past, and I did it all the time, blaspheming his name. And based on this, it seems like I should have just been struck dead on the instant, but I wasn't. And when that doesn't happen, what do we make of this? Well, as sinners, our default position is to think, well, I guess it doesn't really matter. I got away with it. You know, God doesn't obviously care too much about this. It's just a few little words. If that's what we're coming away from it, you have totally misunderstood who this God is. And we know this, especially once we do see the punishment meted out for this crime. So I want you to look with me to the next book in the Bible, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 24. We've been in Exodus. We want to explore an incident, incident where there is a blasphemer and how they treat him. And that's just in the next book, Leviticus chapter 24. Here, Israel gets their hands on a blasphemer, one who curses the name of God. And they had to go to God through Moses to figure out, well, what are we supposed to do with this guy? Because there's no penalty precisely stipulated in the 10. What's the right penalty that fits the crime? And so the incident starts in verse 10. We have to summarize here. But you see in the process of these couple guys tussling in a camp, one of them, it says, blasphemes the name and curses. This is a big no-no. We see it there in verse 11 of Leviticus 24. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. So it seems like people were content to kind of watch the fight happen. Like, well, that's not very good. But then a guy blasphemes. And it's as if everything went dead quiet. You been there? Like happens in your home when a kid says something they really know they're not supposed to say? So then they, then they intervene, they grab the guy, and they arrest him and bring him to Moses. And so they bring him to Moses to figure out, well, what's supposed to be done with him? And the Lord gives the sentence. What's the penalty? Pick it up in verse 14. Here's what God says. Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And what does that mean? Clearly, verse 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. 
death? For a couple words? Thoughtless words, even? Is that fair? Doesn't that seem to be more like the cruel and unusual category? Unfit for the crime? Evidently not. Because look what comes next in Exodus, or excuse me, in Leviticus. Look what starts in verse 17. This is the expression of what's called the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. It's that the punishment must fit the crime. And you'll notice the typical biblical expression of it. It arises in verse 20, or even you see it at the end of verse 18, life for life. Or going on verse 20, we see fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. you got to make it right. Whatever penalty and infringement you did upon somebody, it's got to be done against you. That's what's fair. That's just. And that means sometimes restitution is required when you can't pay it back. That's what's intended here with when you kill an animal, you have to make it good. Sometimes you can't even make proper restitution. When you've taken somebody's life, you must give over your own. And again, I think, I think we see the justice in that. Whether you agree with it or not, I think you see it. Life for life. Sure, I get it. Whoever kills a person is put to death. In that way, death penalty is the just punishment for a murderer. But we're not dealing with murder. Death, ending someone's life, who's engaged in a heated argument, a fight now that's going fist to cuffs, And in the process, he blurts out, maybe even accidentally invokes God's name. Death's supposed to be the right punishment there? Yes. Yes, it is. And that's exactly what the Lord's telling you by putting this bit about eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and life for life stuff right after he sentenced the blasphemer to death. Because you'll notice... After he goes through life for life, tooth for tooth, and so forth, we pick it up in verse 23. And it picks back up with the story. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Whoa. As verse 17 started with that whole eye for eye stuff, it wasn't randomly inserted, as it might appear as you read different things in the law. No, he brought it up precisely then to explain and justify why death must happen. And maybe it makes a little more sense when you understand life for life, right? You kill an image bearer of God, you deserve to die. You slander the name of God, you deserve to die. Taking God's name is serious. It's deadly serious. Because God's name represents the most sacred, the most marvelous, the most powerful, the most special thing there is that you could conceive or imagine, He's better, and it's the Lord God. And He will not be spoken of as a curse word or as a flippant, powerless, insignificant thing. 
Just as the Lord holds the murderer of a human being made in God's image as a horrible crime, he sees blasphemy evidently as the same. And so here's the point. If you want to object and say, no way, that's not fair, that's not right, you're only incriminating yourself further that you have yet to appreciate how weighty, how sacred, and how glorious the Lord God Almighty is. In a way, it's like the classic story of the, the thrift store that inadvertently sells a masterpiece for $5 because they had no clue about what they had. They sold it for a few bucks and it's worth millions. It's a Picasso, right? Well, we do the same thing when we think that misusing God's name is no big deal because we don't know what his name is worth. Because think about it conversely. Do you like being slandered? Do you like being especially misrepresented and lied against in your character? Well, what about God? Isn't His name worth far more? Well, sure, it is, Rick, but good thing we're in the New Testament, aren't we? Whoo! None of this applies. We're not putting people to death for blasphemy anymore, right? Correct, we're not. So in that way, the law principle doesn't apply in the same way. We talked about this when we began our study in the Ten Commandments. But the principle is still in force, even if it applies differently. That is, we talked about this, the church doesn't bear the sword. We're not to condemn or certainly execute anyone for anything. But get this, even in the New Testament, Jesus will not let those words go. He will reckon with them. Understand, even still, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Jesus, loving Jesus in the New Testament, even assures us he will deal with every word of the judgment when it's just you and God, and you won't get to say any more words. We read this. Remember this? Matthew 12, verse 36. I tell you, Jesus says, on the day of judgment, People will give an account for every careless word they speak. And the most careless ones of all, those who take the Lord's name in vain. And not even here, or excuse me, now even here, in Matthew 12, there's hope. Because just four verses before this, Christ assured us of this. He said this in Matthew 12, 32, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. This is glorious. Christ can and will forgive even though you are the worst guilty blasphemer you know. If you will repent and call upon His name for mercy. You know, we feel this in our culture with the tension. Many of you are employed by certain organizations, Right? And if you say the wrong thing, post the wrong thing in your social media, especially about biblical values, the culture is ready to cancel you or cut your job. Well, Jesus is serious about his name. He doesn't want it also trademarked, uh, desecrated. But he's not out ready to cancel you. He's ready to cancel your sins if you'll call on his name. To have them done away with forever. 
He's not holding this law over you to put you as a hopeless despair. He's putting you on your face to cry out to that name for mercy. And if you will repent of your blaspheming and you're taking his name as a light thing, and you will call upon that name now as the most holy thing because it's the merciful thing, and then to know that in his name you are forgiven, how can you ever make light of such a beautiful and glorious and forgiving name as the name of Jesus Christ? Who despite your great guilt, loved you and came for you and redeemed you all the same. Such that in thanks our whole life is lived to praise the name. Really, you could summarize this whole sermon with this verse that Paul gives us in Colossians chapter 3. This is Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything how? In the name of the Lord Jesus. And what's the character of it? Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Because he didn't cancel you, he canceled your sins. Forever you making you his own. So that your life in gratitude and devotion to the name of Jesus. So friend, what did your life this past week say about the name of Jesus Christ? Was it esteemed, treasured, honored? Or did your works or your words paint a Jesus that anybody like you can just take or leave? Well, let us repent. Let's take up our sins, confess them to the one named Jesus, Let's take those sins to him because that's what his name means. He is the one who saves his people from their sins. And with that forgiveness, let us walk in worship to him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would forgive us. Cleanse us from the sins of our hearts and our mouth. We're drawn to that example of Isaiah, who confronted with that vision of your holiness in your glory. He says, woe to me, because I am undone, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But then, of course, the cherubim, or the seraph, cleanses his lips and says, your guilt is taken away your sins atoned for. May that be the assurance of your people today, O Lord, that we know in Christ our guilt is taken away, our sins are atoned for, and so may we respond like Isaiah when we hear your call, whom shall I send, who will go for us, who will represent us? May we cry out with the great prophet, here I am, send me. Do that among the people you've bought and marked by your blood. For glorious Jesus' name we pray. Amen.